exploring James. It was not unintentional, the use of the word exploring. We wanted to capture the idea of, of an adventure, um, you know, of something that is new and that we can see for the first time. There's something compelling about that. I love reading history. I love, I love you know, learning about things and learning about people who learned about things. And I like watching films that have discovery and adventure in them. And that's, why I think, why a lot of things like, like science fiction is so popular. It can take us places. And, we can see things and experience things. And, you know, I go all the way, I was thinking about when I was 10 years old. I remember watching a, a show that at that time was in syndication and how much I was just, I loved watching this, this, that show. It started out space, the final frontier, right? <laughs> These are the voyages. And I remember you know, to boldly go where no one has gone before. And I would watch Captain Kirk and this, this Vulcan named Spock, you know, I would love, I loved it. I, I got lost in the discovery and adventure. And I know it's all just story and film and all that. But I like, I, I think God put in us the idea of exploration. I think discovery is in us, just like love is. The capacity to love and create things is an imprint of God. Why do we love to create as human beings? Because we reflect something of the, what they called the Imago Dei in the Latin the image of God, even the brokenness, is still something there. So we long to learn, to know why we're here, to why we exist, to love, to discover, to expand. I mean, this is, this is part of it. There's a reflection of God's creative touch in our, in our very DNA. And so we're going to explore the book of James. And that's a great book. It's a little book in the New Testament. It um, initially can be bypassed because it's like, oh, yeah, just look, you know, not that many chapters. And you know what, though? It's so practical. It's got a key, a key kind of uh, root word in it is patience. It has to do with learning how to move through things well. And um, it has a practical component to this little book. Again, I want to encourage everybody to read, extra intentionally read the book of James this summer. We're going to be hearing from a lot of different people, share around it. It's, it's going to be a wonderful opportunity to deepen our life with Christ, uh, to grow. Um, the book itself, by the way, James, is not named after the Apostle James. I know a lot of times we, uh, I talk to people, and, and even there were a number of years where I even that's, I just thought, oh, that's James the the brother of John, one of the key guys in the circle of Jesus, the apostle, the disciple, that's who wrote the book. It wasn't until I got a little older that I actually um, came to the understanding that James was not, the James that wrote the book of James was not James the disciple, apostle, um, but the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. It was actually James, the half-brother of Jesus. And what we know about it is that James be became a follower of the Lord but not during our Lord's ministry. We say, um, half-brother, we know that, that from the scriptures that Jesus, um, who was born in an astonishing, miraculous way as the Holy Spirit overcame Mary, and um, God enters into time so that to, he comes to us so that we could get to him. I mean, that's really why we celebrate Christmas. Uh, but... We know that Mary and Joseph, though, had a family of their own, and they had, Jesus had brothers. James appears to be the oldest of his half-brothers, not the same father, but the same mother. And then they also had sisters. And we're told, interestingly enough, in John 7, I just put this up, it says that even his brothers did not believe in him. So we know that the initial reaction of his siblings 
So ordinary appeared to be Jesus' life, so lacking in the miraculous, that for the first 30 years of his life, for the most part, it was extraordinarily subdued and restrained. He was trained as a carpenter. He doesn't even begin his public ministry till he's 30. When he does begin to declare himself as Messiah, the Son of God, there, there is an immediate reaction. He has uh, astonishing words that he says, but it appears that even after his teachings and his miracles, that his brothers remained skeptical and refused to affirm their belief in him. And were actually, we read in other places, uncomfortable with what was becoming a Jesus controversy to the extent that you almost, it almost, you almost get the impression, if I may characterize it, that there were, there were certain moments in the scripture where they wanted Jesus to take his, I'll put it this way, road show somewhere else. They thought he was a little bit crazy. And they did not receive him or believe. What we know, though, and then, and then of course, his death sudden and violent public execution probably did nothing but confirm the conviction of his half-brothers and sisters that he was not anything that he said he was, but rather what they believed him to be. But something happened. Something happened that changed everything. We know that the cross is not the end. If, it, if the cross was just the final chapter of Jesus' life, uh, it would be beautiful but sad, and there would be no reason to follow him, to be quite honest. The Bible is clear about that. that. That the cross actually was not the final chapter. Rather, it was the final page in the first chapter, because what follows is the resurrection. And we know that after the resurrection, Jesus showed himself for a period of time, 40 days, it says, before he ascended and left this world as we know it. And in that period of time, he appeared to people, Paul is very explicit. You'll note there in 1 Corinthians 15, he has a long list, especially in verses uh, 5. Well, he says verses 4 through, nine, 4 through 7, he talks about the people who Jesus appears to. Um, after he talks about him being seen by Peter in verse 5 there, then by the 12, he said he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Paul writes, at the time of my writing, some of them are still alive, actually, although some of them have died. And then notice what he says. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. It says that then he was seen by James and later by the apostles. That James is the James, the half-brother of Jesus, the one who authors this book. We know from, from Galatians, and again, we'll just put this up real quick. This is just sort of give it a, a basis. Galatians 1, 18, 19, Paul writes this, that after three years I went up to Jerusalem and to see Peter, and I remained there for 15 days. But then notice what he says. But I saw none of the other apostles, but who? Except James, the Lord's brother. You know what happens? James goes from an unbelieving sibling to a believer completely sold out to Jesus who emerges, interestingly enough, if you read the book of Acts, he emerges as essentially the senior or lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. It's James and Peter for the most part, but James has a significant role, probably the preeminent role of leading the first church that was in place, which was a predominantly Jewish church. In fact, it, <laughs> It's interesting because we often forget this, that, that the early church begins, it's almost all Jewish. James was someone who ultimately would be martyred for his faith 30 years later. He'd be killed for the confession that Jesus, what changed the man? What changed it from an unbeliever was that he saw the risen Jesus. Now, that brings us to the first verse here of James 1. And I want us to just sit with this in the minutes that we have left. He says, look, at, look how he starts the letter out. This is how it begins. This, is, this letter is from James. 
And now he does, a, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice, he doesn't start out, which is kind of surprising. I mean, the word itself is shocking. I mean, he doesn't start out by saying, you know, this letter is from James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He doesn't start out by saying, this letter is from James. I mean, he really could have played the, the half-brother of Jesus. Instant, instant authority, credibility, you talk about. But no, how does he start his letter? This letter is from James, the slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's almost jarring. What, is, what, what, do you do? what is he underscoring here? I, it's his utter loyalty, submission, and devotion to Jesus. He is basically saying, I am one who has completely, by my own volition, yielded my rights to follow him. It was a statement right on the front end of someone who's given their life to follow Christ. And then he says the letter is addressed to 12 tribes. What does he say? Jewish believers scattered abroad. We call them the, the diaspora, right? We often forget that the early Christian church, again, was Jewish. First believers in Jesus were Jewish. The apostles were Jewish. It took a, in fact, it took a long time for this message to get out to the Gentile world. It wasn't until really the apostle Paul took it out there into the Greco-Roman world and, and, that it, and then beyond that the gospel went out further. But it's important to remember that a lot of these believers were suffering. Um, they were actually going through a tremendous amount of hardship because of their faith. Some of them had lost their community. Some of them had been persecuted. Some of them had been stripped away of their dignity. Some of them have had their goods taken. Some of them had watched even people they loved actually die. It was not, they, they had not just experienced the, the joyous, overflowing, blessed life, if we call it only on the basis of the absence of trouble. He's saying, to those of you who are scattered abroad, I want to talk to you about some of the challenges that you're experiencing. And I want to challenge you around your attitude and how you're supposed to walk into trouble, th trouble, trouble times, challenging times. I want to talk to you about that. Look what he says here. And we'll just kind of read it through verses two through four. He says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, I want you to shift your paradigm. I want you actually, instead of to being defeated by it, I want you to consider it an opportunity for great joy. What a good word that is. It's a word for us, you know. For you know that when your faith is tested, and it will be, your endurance actually has a chance to grow, so I want you to let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be, you'll be perfect. That is, there's a maturity that begins to come into your life, completeness. You'll need nothing, you're really free. Now, can you hear me? I'll just kind of put this on the board. Let me just suggest, number one, that, and James is getting at this, that God, I say this all the time, but I love talking about it, that God wants us to grow in our faith and in our capacity to endure hardship and difficulty. And in life, we're going to have tough times. But like someone who's training for a race, right, or someone who's trying to expand their lung capacity or enhance our cardiovascular capacity or strength training, breaking down tissue to build it even stronger. I mean, God wants us to be a people who are growing. And frequently, we will find that, that um, we have this opportunity to grow in our faith. And the, the, the life in Jesus is a growing life. It's not intended to just be something that's static, passive. I often talk about it. It's not meant to just be like a, a boring, cerebral, you know, belief system that we kind of just have as a part of our life insurance policy. And rather, it's supposed to be alive and active and growing and compounding. And when it's working right, it's going to stretch us. It's going to push us. It's gonna, we're gonna have, there are going to be times we're going to have to wrestle with God. 
like Jacob wrestles with the angel. We're going to be wrestling. Lord, I know what you're asking me to do, but I'm having a hard time. Or Lord, I'm sensing you're, you're wanting to, to, to work this out of my life. And I know that you have a process for me to, to move into. And there are things you're, you're wanting me to challenge that I haven't been challenging before. And it's a part of growing and, and becoming more of what you want me to be. And there are times when we're going to wrestle. It's not going to always be easy. It's not always going to be something simple. It's going to involve maybe even sometimes reforming our identity. Allowing the master to shape us and mo to move us into a new place. Sometimes it means wrestling with ourselves. Learning how to surrender things. Learning how to let go. Redefine ourselves. Not operating out of the wounds of life. A lot of times we, we become defined by our wounding. And so we have, or, or we fall back easily into places where we, we don't want to go anymore, truly. Because we've, we've learned a pattern of addictiveness. And the life in Christ is a, is a freeing life. And God wants to teach us how to grow. And part of that's going to mean wrestling. I always say to people, it means we're going to have to trust in his ability to sustain us, even in our weakness. That that's part of learning how to, how to you know, trust him in our weak places. We all have vulnerable areas. I hope we can know that. Well, I mentioned to you that one time when he says, it's not many times, my grandfather told me, it's not many times you fall, it's not many times you get up. He's reminding me to be resilient, not to quit, not to get too defeated by my own inability to meet up to something that I knew God was wanting me to step up to. There are times where we need to be honest about our weakness. And that may even be true in our own heart. Um, you know, we often talk about how the, the, in our lives, we all, it's like a chain, and, and when stress is applied, the weakest link is what usually is what blows apart. I've, I've, that's very true in, in relationships, certainly in a, in a marriage. It, when, you, when you have a stress that comes, it will, it, the, play, the first part in the chain that breaks is the place that's the least strong. It's, and, and, and so it is in our own life with God. That, that we typically, it, we have defaults that we fall back into it, it, because we, we have a pattern of doing. And one of the things the Lord wants to teach us how to do is gain strength in the, in the areas where we have been in the past most likely to fall back into places. When the stress, the hardship is applied, God wants to teach us to grow in such a way that we can hold. We don't, we don't, Break apart, we can hold. And this is, this is a process of growth that the Lord often wants to work in our lives. And you know, that's what, and can you hear me? That's what James is getting at, is he's saying, actually, there is a way that God can actually strengthen you. He's saying, a lot of times it's through the challenge and the difficult places in life where you have a unique opportunity because it tends to be catalytic. It, it's oftentimes in the dark places or in the valleys or as we're sitting in our womb that we are more open to the new thing that God wants to do. And things that we wouldn't have looked at before, now I'm willing to look at it. And when we do that, there's something about this idea of honesty, humility, and then some hard work. And when we do that, when, we, when we're honest about things, and I'm saying, no, you know what? I, this, I, have, I have a tendency to do this. I do. When the heat is on, this is what I drop into. I remember a period in my life where I would drop into what, I, what my dad did. You know, when I, get, when I get afraid, I get angry. And how I remember, I remember a period where God was saying to me, you know what? You can't do that. I'm not going to give you the freedom to, to bless that. 
You can't do that to your kids. You're going to have to learn how to be patient and, and, and not, not let that fear move you into an angry place. It's about being honest. It's about being, and then there's a humility about that. You got to, a lot of growth places starts with humility. There's a humility in saying, I am weak here. I need help. Lord, help me. And that means sometimes I got to bring other people into that. That the wisdom of God is there, but then I'm being honest, I may not be able to do this without some degree of healthy accountability. That I'm, I'm about breakthrough and longevity and keeping commitments over time and growing and having character formation, but that doesn't always come. The isolate, we got to have to be able to be willing to build community to get a lot of what God wants to bring. Secondly, and I'll put this up there, God wants us also to be joyful, and it's not any less important. Say, ah, oh, it's a simple phrase. And I almost didn't want to even use this one because I thought, ah, you know, joyful. People think of joyful. It's like, uh, you know, oh, well, what are you saying? You know, you're, not, you're denying that, you, that when you're having a problem that you're just going to pretend that it's all good when it's not? I'm not talking about joy. James isn't saying be giddy. Like, ha, 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 lightweight stuff. No problem. Deny it. He's not saying just pretend that there's no problem when there is one. No, he's not saying that. He's actually, in context, he's saying, I want you to actually see this as an opportunity for, God to, for good, so therefore it should cause us to rejoice. But I'm thinking about this, that the Christian life actually is a life that is, at its core, is joyful. Um, they didn't say, there goes Jesus, the unhappy man. <laughs> Come and follow me. I will show you how to be joyless. Come on. He didn't say that. He said, come and follow me. I'll fill your life. Blessed are you. Take my yoke on you. Learn of me. Walk my steps. Let my spirit change you. Let me recreate you. It was, there goes the joyful. The joy to me is at, is, is at the center place. It's like... Um, it's like, Lord, sometimes I just need to welcome you into this bad situation. I welcome, fill me with your joy. I was talking, remember last week I shared this. Um, I know not everybody was here, but I was telling you about a conversation I had with a man who I hadn't seen for a long time, or at least for quite a while, probably been a year. But a man whose faith I admired, who I love him. I love the way he loves Jesus. It's different, but I really like him. And I was, he's, had, he's a person who struggled with a lot of physical issues in his life. And I've always admired his faith and his, his genuine, authentic love for Jesus. In fact, I think sometimes the people that I've been most inspired by are the people that have walked through hardship well and model a life that's in Christ, even when it's not going their way. It helps me because sometimes I go, Lord, I want to be like that. Give me courage and optimism to trust you. I was talking to him because what had happened was he picked up a, a, a kind of infection that, that because of the other medications he had been taking, his immunity system was weakened, and he ended up having to have a part of his leg amputated. And I hadn't seen him. And um, I didn't know how that conversation was going to go. I didn't know the frame of mind he was in. I was just, I was blessed. He came in, in his wheelchair. He, we, were, we, we had a wonderful, rich, honest, authentic exchange where Christ was so present in the midst of those. You know when you have that with a friend? When you have a conversation with a friend and Jesus is present because in the words you're sharing, you, feel, you know he's near. 
And I, I, what I was, ama- I was inspired by was the, the fact is there was not, he was not saying this is great, but there was not the spirit of, of lament, but rather a spirit of gratitude that was on him for all the things that God has done through this, this really tough thing that he was dealing with. But there was a life of Christ in the man. And it inspired me. In fact, then I started thinking, hey, Lord, I am afraid of things that I should not be afraid of. And, and, then I'll, and I'll leave it with this. And this will be the last thing we'll put up on the board. And because it, it, it connected me right here is that God wants us to view life, especially, especially our life in faith, through the lens of opportunity. Count it all joy because it's an opportunity to grow. He's saying is that, just like this, this, this friend of mine was, was saying, you know what, God's been teaching me to be grateful, to receive things. He's been humbling me, causing me to rely in a, in a way of openness that I would have never been, been really appreciative of before. You know what he tells me? He goes, my faith has, even been, has been awakened at an even another level. I was going, Lord, because here's why. Because a lot of times, you guys, instead of living afraid of things, we need to practice trusting him. I need to practice trusting God. Instead of being afraid of what may happen, what is happening, what could happen. I could, we don't control a lot of things. But we can, tr- we can trust him. That's what James is getting at here. That he's, he's, he's saying, you've got to trust me. Remember, it's not, it's not saying that everything is fun but that, and that everything is great. But that God can use bad things, even things that we don't want, to bring about growth in our life if we'll, if we'll allow him to. Because we are being shaped by him. I'll throw a, a, we have a a verse in Ephesians. I'll just close it with this. In Ephesians 2, 10, it says this, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you know what you are? We are his craftsmanship, his masterpiece, the root word there, his poems that he is writing. And God is shaping us and forming us if we will allow him to fashion our lives like the master sculptor, I think of Da Vinci, I think of Michelangelo, I think of, I think of the, the, the way in which, you know, some of those <laughs> sculptures were emerging. He said, he, he, said he, would, he was letting out the man inside the marble, chipping away to let the man escape. Hey, God has stuff in us. He wants to let it, he wants to create us into a, into a living, breathing, fully alive man or woman who loves him and can move through life well, even when it is hard. In fact, at those times, it it even allows God, God can even do amazing things in the worst of places. He has so much to teach us, so much he wants to fashion in us, so so much he wants to write in us. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we want to be open to you, want to be willing want to be able to say, Lord, my heart is open. Write your words in me. Uh, A lot of times we get stuck. Get us unstuck. A lot of times we get locked in. Help us, Lord, to be free. A lot of times we hold on to stuff. Help us to let them go. Um, A lot of times we get resentful, bitter, angry about things that are happening. Teach us your way as a light way. Give us a joy that that is inexplicable, that it, it surpasses happiness, that it extends beyond that. Lord, teach us your ways. Fashion in us, in our lives, your purposes. And let there be, as the years go by, an evident blessing that flows out to other people. And I pray that, Lord. You write new chapters, and may the, may the chapters you're writing be good chapters. And may, may your purposes and your grace be evident throughout the pages of our lives. 
We ask for your blessing. Bless our closing time of giving. And we honor you in it. Bless the song. Fashion. Shape us, Lord. That's what that song's all about. Let it be the closing word, the benediction for us. This is what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.